Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 13, An Island with a Lottery Problem. The modern history of Prince Edward Island began with a lottery. We're not talking Lotto 649 with Encore here. It was a, it was a little more exclusive than that. It took place on the 23rd of July, 1767 in London, England. That's when the Commissioners for Trade and Plantations announced the names of individuals who would receive title to the 67 different parcels of land into which St. John Island had been divided. That's how Prince Edward Island was then known, or Ile Saint-Jean to the French. It wouldn't be named after the, the fourth son of George III, Prince Edward, until 1799. The lucky lottery winners each received title to a massive estate, most 22,000 acres in size. Britain had only just taken possession of the island at the Treaty of Paris in 1763, which ended the Seven Years' War. That war had been a triumph for the British Empire, almost entirely eradicating French control over North America and leading to worldwide victories for Britain. The land-grant lottery for tiny little St. John Island was hardly the most significant event to come out of those years. Yet for those who would later live on the island, and for the lottery winners, those who would come to be called the proprietors or the, the landlords, this was incredibly significant. The whole thing was odd, even in its historical context. The British Empire in North America was one of freehold settlement, individual settlers and their families claiming and extending private property rights. This is the main story of Britain's settler empire, certainly the main story for the settlers themselves. The land lottery of 1767 meant that of all the colonies of British North America, the island would move in a different direction trying to recreate in North America the kind of large feudal estates which were even then still common in Britain itself, with large aristocratic landowners renting out parcels of land to people who were not quite, but almost, peasants. It wasn't going to end well. From that day in 1767 forward, what came to be called the land question would, in a host of various guises, profoundly shape life on the island. The land question in PEI is a story where everyone felt that they were the suckers, that someone else was benefiting at their expense, and everyone had a somewhat reasonable case to make. Let's start with the lottery winners, the proprietors. The British government hoped that these new landlords would move to the New World and actively take up their position as semi-aristocratic lords on the island. Yet with only a few exceptions, this never happened. By 1780, when the first governor arrived on the island, there were only about 300 permanent residents in total, mostly Acadians still lingering on after the deportation from just before the war. The island was remote and largely now unpopulated. While it might in the future house large numbers of settlers that could provide an income to a leisured landlord, it certainly didn't yet. And the next several decades, with the turmoil of war from the first American Revolutionary War and then shortly after the French Revolutionary Wars, only interrupted trade and immigration even further. Upon handing over the lands to the proprietors, 
the British government established a few conditions. The landlords were supposed to settle their land with at least one settler for every 200 acres. These settlers were also supposed to be Protestants who came from outside the British Empire. Remember, Britain was very much a Protestant state in this era. The landlords were also expected to cover the whole cost of the colony by paying annual quit rents. This was to be important, and it's why the island was soon separated from Nova Scotia to have a government of its own. Empires were expensive, and the British hoped that by creating a network of large landowners, they could foist the whole cost of operating the government off onto these landlords. The island was supposed to be an essentially free colony paid for entirely by the rents and taxes of the landlords and tenants. None of this worked out, and the landlords failed almost entirely to meet these essential conditions, something we'll come back to shortly. To be fair to the landlords, though, even those who attempted to make things genuinely work, who moved to the island and tried to settle their lands, they found the task incredibly difficult and several financially ruined themselves in the process. It was difficult to attract settlers. The cost of clearing the land was immense and time-consuming. And all of this happened in the, in the early decades amidst the political and military turmoil. Most landlords preferred to sit on their investment and sell it on to someone else as a, a kind of real estate investment. These absentee landlords, that is, most of them, relied on local agents to manage their investments. And the litany of landlord complaints against dishonest and disreputable land agents is long and detailed. So that brings us to the, the next group in the land question, the local land agents. In the landlord's telling, these fellows could not be trusted. Frequently attempting to bilk the landlords out of their land or skim off the meager profits for themselves, the agents were seen as those barely tolerable semi-free agents. There was a fair bit of truth in this characterization, especially in the early decades. And much of what counts as the, the early political history of the island can be boiled down to battles between landlords and agents, each fighting over payments and land title, claims for office, and then anger over payment or non-payment of fees. For the settlers, those who came to the island to work the land, the whole situation was both odd and frustrating. There were essentially two types of settlers, those who were official tenants who had signed agreements with the landlord to occupy the land, and then squatters, those who had simply taken up land unofficially. Squatters often believed that the absentee landlords had no real right to the land, certainly not to rents and fees for land that a settler had improved. And so they hoped to take advantage of the landlord's absence to use the land, perhaps hoping that they could later take up official title themselves. The landlords and the landlord's agents could evict squatters, but most preferred to try to get them to sign leases and become official tenants. The whole situation was entirely different than in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, or the Canadas in these years, when new settlers took possession of land from the colonial government and became landowners. Tenants were expected to pay rent to the proprietor, usually one shilling an acre, and also to pay the, the quit rent for that part of the land. 
for the landlord, this, this made sense, of course, to contract out the cost of land ownership and then earn a bit of income on the side. But the process of clearing a farm was time-consuming. Usually a settler could only clear about two acres per year. While some agreements allowed tenants lower or no rent in the first few years, it still was incredibly common for tenants to fall behind in their rent, to go into arrears. Most landlords did not immediately evict a tenant who failed to pay, but at any point they could sue for these arrears and get rid of a tenant who failed to pay up. This meant that for the tenant who had improved their property, clearing land, building a home, and perhaps outbuildings, all of this could be lost in a moment on the whim of a landlord or their agent. They had none of the security of private property ownership. Landlords themselves had their own complaints. Over time, a series of local customs developed that lightened the load on tenants, allowing them to pay their fees in the local currency and not in pounds sterling. And the local currency was worth slightly less. Remember, this was a, an issue in Newfoundland in a different context. Local custom also held that tenants need not pay interest on their arrears. The local land agents claimed that they could do nothing about this, and so the landlords believed that they, and not the tenants, got the raw end of the deal. In other words, the bizarre system of landlord, tenant, squatter, and land agent created a, a network of interdependency in which each side believed that it was being screwed. There are a slew of fascinating individual stories behind these kind of general trends that I'm going to skip over because I want to fast forward to the 1830s. In that decade of rebellious uprisings, the period which saw Lower Canadian Patriot fight for constitutional change and then join an outright rebellion, the era which saw the rise of William Lyon Mackenzie's Republican attack on Upper Canada, also saw tumult arrive in Prince Edward Island too, and it centered on the land question. The demagogic heart of the fight was a man named William Cooper. Cooper was almost certainly a man scorned, though not by a lover, but by a proprietor. As a young man, Cooper had run away to join the British Navy and fought in the Napoleonic Wars. He arrived on Prince Edward Island around 1819, the owner of a trading ship, and soon found work as a land agent for a reputedly quite tough absentee landlord. In fact, one of the landlord's tenants had just fled the island after murdering the previous land agent, so not an auspicious start for Cooper. Still, Cooper did well for himself for almost a decade before the landlord fired him over allegations of corruption. This must have been a turning point, for Cooper soon went from land agent to critic of the whole land system. Cooper presented himself for election to the assembly, and his one big issue was the necessity of dealing with the land question. Cooper became the chief spokesperson for a radical movement built around a clever, but perhaps too clever, idea. It was called the Ashit Movement. For decades now, a number of locals had played with the idea that the way to deal with the landlords was to build upon the fact that they had actually never upheld their part of the bargain. Remember those obligations that had come with winning the lottery? Settling tenants on land within a decade who were Protestants from outside the empire? 
Well, most landlords had failed to meet those requirements. So maybe what was needed was a special court to review all of these cases to determine if the landlords had met their obligations and then to escheat, it's an old feudal term meaning to confiscate, the lands of those who failed to meet their obligations. These lands could then be sold to the tenants who actually occupied and improved them. Problem solved. That was the idea anyway. And from 1831 on, when Cooper took up a seat in the House of Assembly, he became its biggest exponent. The Asheet movement was something like the campaign for the 92 resolutions or for Mackenzie's attack against the family compact. But it was targeted towards the great populist enemy on the island, the absentee landlords. Most representatives in the House of Assembly, however, came from the colony's local elite, lawyers and land agents, those who, with a stake in the current system. They also had a, a fairly healthy respect for property rights and so were skeptical of Cooper's somewhat ingenious but still radical undermining of the proprietor's rights to title. Still, the idea had broad appeal. The electoral base on the island was relatively broad, that is, for the time. A lot of people could vote, and the voting list had just been expanded to include large numbers of local Catholics, many of whom were squatters. The real turning point came in the 1838 election. In that campaign, Cooper and others supporting a sheet won 18 of the 24 seats in the House of Assembly. It was a triumph for Cooper personally and also set the land question up as the key issue in island politics. However, Cooper hadn't counted on the stubborn intransigence of Lord John Russell. This is the, the Russell of the Russell res Resolutions, the one who had stood steadfast against the Patriot who we met back in season one. So when, in 1839, the Island House of Assembly sent Cooper to London to push his campaign for a sheet in person to the imperial government, Russell, who was colonial secretary, simply refused to meet him. Cooper hung around London for several months, hoping to get an audience and to have some impact, but to no effect. He was forced to head back to the island in the autumn with nothing to show for his efforts. It was perhaps unlikely to think that the British government could or would have done anything like what Cooper was demanding. The most important reason was that the members of the House of Commons, and especially the House of Lords in Britain, were often large landowners themselves. What kind of precedent would it set to establish a court of a sheet to test whether landowners had met their obligations and to almost certainly remove property from their hands, transferring it over to the tenants. What started on Prince Edward Island would almost certainly pass over to Ireland or Yorkshire. No, sir, we don't want any of that. Thank you. Cooper returned to the island and to the assembly and attempted to pass several bills to improve the plight of tenants, exempting them from having to pay quit rents, for example. To each of these bills, the colonial secretary refused assent. Remember, this is still before responsible government, and so the colonial governor as well as the colonial secretary took a decided interest in governing local affairs. 
none of this led to even further radicalization or rebellion as elsewhere in the Canadas. Cooper himself seems to have become bored by politics. His business interests expanded, he took on more ships, and by the end of the 1840s, he even took his whole family and set off on one of his own ships for California to make money in the gold rush. It was a disastrous decision. His wife and one son died of cholera. Three other children were killed in conflicts with local indigenous peoples. By the mid-1850s, Cooper was back on the island, but only one of his sons would ever outlive him. We aren't here, though, to focus exclusively on Cooper. On Prince Edward Island, after the failure of Cooper and the Ashit movement, reformers turned to the issue of responsible government. This shouldn't exactly be a surprise, as this is exactly what happened in the Canadas. With the collapse of the more radical Republican challenges there, moderate reformers urging responsible government came to the fore. The same thing happened in Prince Edward Island. The man most associated with responsible government and the new politics of reform was George Coles. He was actually a former Tory, though he he differed from many Tories and many leading politicians in that he didn't earn his keep as a land agent or in connection to land at all. He was primarily a brewer and distiller, though he was also a, a businessman who got into other industries too. Coles wanted to sell things to Prince Edward Islanders, and he wanted them to have enough money to buy those items. He also didn't owe the landlords or the agents anything. By the late 1840s, Coles found himself at the head of the movement for responsible government. And although Nova Scotia and the Canadas had already won responsible government, the British remained nervous about allowing such a small colony as Prince Edward Island to govern its own affairs especially because the local government was almost bound to want to interfere with the rights of the large absentee landlords. But by the spring of 1851, the British government felt it could avoid the measure no longer and so finally conceded to the reformers under Coles who controlled a majority in the assembly. Now, what would Coles do? In many ways, Prince Edward Island became a haven for all of the many things democratic reformers wanted to do in British North America. The area became the first to allow free public schooling. The central government took over the cost of hiring teachers, removing the burden from local taxpayers, and it banned the charging of tuition fees. Then, the reformers modified the franchise, extending the vote to virtually all adult men on the island. And of course, in a colony with so many tenants, this only made sense, minimizing property qualifications so that most could vote. However, this also brought with it pressure to actually do something on the whole land question. What would they do? Coles had always been a critic of the Ashit movement, disliking its radical rejection of property rights. So the reformers attempted a series of other moves, trying to pass measures that would have compensated tenants for any improvements they'd made to the lands from which they were evicted, for example, imposing taxes on large estates, you know, and other items. In each case, Coles found that the British government remained intransigent. There were decided limits to responsible government in PEI. The locals could control some items, but not when it came to the rights of the landlords. The one exception 
the one area where Coles' reformers finally managed to pass a law to help tenants proved to be a disaster in its own right. This was a bill passed in 1853 allowing the colonial government to buy large estates and then resell the properties to local tenants. The only problem, almost none of the landlords wanted to sell. When one absentee landlord did finally agree to sell, the local land agents entirely ripped off Coles' government, hiking up the price dramatically and skimming off a large portion of the profit for themselves. The reform government seems to have gone along with the purchase just to say it had done something, but it wasn't a good sign. The land question remained intractable. So it remained until the Tories on the island finally found a way to defeat the reformers in 1859. How did they do it? Why, they turned to the main issue of 1850s identity politics, religious tensions and anti-Catholicism. The intricacies of the controversy aren't worth going into in detail, but it all centered on the question of whether the Bible would be read in public schools. The local practice on the island was to allow for Bible reading in schools. But the local Catholic bishop had become infuriated by this policy at one school in particular and had written a a denunciatory screed against it, which was then leaked. Others took up positions on one side and another, and the whole fight became a Protestant versus Catholic free-for-all. The trick for reformers was that they depended on the support of the Roman Catholic minority on the island. When the Protestants ganged together over this issue, the Tories managed to come back to power under a man named Edward Palmer. Once in power, the Tories too needed to try to solve the land question, and they fared no better than the reformers. They did establish, though, a special commission to investigate the whole issue with representatives chosen by the landlords, the imperial government, and the local government. All the commissioners came from other maritime colonies, and one of these was none other than friend of the show, Joseph Howe, the father of responsible government in Nova Scotia and arguably Canada. However, although the commission gave the whole issue the most thorough investigation it ever received and made some reasonable recommendations, suggesting that tenants have the right to purchase their properties at a price to be settled either initially by negotiation or then by arbitration, the landlords refused to agree to the commission's recommendations, claiming it had overreached its mandate. The British government agreed and refused assent to the bill the PEI government passed after the commission. All of this meant that by the early 1860s, By the time the Canadians were looking eastward, wondering if the maritime colonies might want to join with them, the residents of Prince Edward Island were no further along in solving the perennial problem of island politics, the one that dated all the way back to the lottery itself. Now, George Coles, the longtime reformer and a man who had been involved in the negotiations, did say, that if the Canadians could offer some solution to the land question, then he personally would support a broader union. There was then, on the island, some interest in British North American Union, but Prince Edward Island had its own history and its own concerns. When the Canadians came calling, the islanders were bound to ask, what can you do for us? 
We shall soon see. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. That's Island 1 and Island 2 done. Next week, we move to the inland coast and discover why the scene in New Brunswick is bound to be a little more welcoming to the Canadians. I'll try to figure out the almost inexplicable New Brunswick story of responsible government, and we'll meet one of my favorite maritime historical figures, Leonard Tilly, both idealist and pragmatist, a man who looks a heck of a lot like Saturday Night Live comedian Bill Hader. Uh, Really, I'm going to put some photos up on the podcast website, so take a look if you don't believe me. He's also a man who witnessed the aftermath of a, a brutal butcher knife murder and decided that the best solution was the one that a heck of a lot of Victorians were also beginning to agree with, but one which we haven't yet talked about on the podcast, banning booze, prohibition, temperance. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, Tell a friend in person or on social media, however you want to do it. Write a review, especially a five-star review. That's always great. It's a good way for others to find the podcast. As always, if you really want to be supportive, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a real-life patron of the 1867 and all that podcast for as low as $5 a month. All the details are in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that in 1867 and all that.